0: Hello, I'm Jennifer Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. We talk about a lot of subjects here, but one subject that comes up a lot for my readers and for my viewers in other medium is journalism itself. There's a lot of frustration out there that journalism isn't doing what it's supposed to be. It isn't serving our democracy well. And if there's anyone who has written more about this and more intelligent things about it, I don't know than Jay Rosen. He is a professor at NYU. He is an active presence on social media, and he provides great insight into the media, why it's not doing what it should, and what it can do better. So without further ado, Jay, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Jennifer.
0: It's my pleasure. Uh, We've communicated for years back and forth, but it's nice to have you all to myself uh, for a while in these crazy news days. So the news business, my sense is, hasn't changed. And that's sort of the problem. They're kind of stuck in a certain mode that maybe was once appropriate and no longer is. Mm. What's your sense about the media's recognition of the times that we were in and the democracy peril that we now face?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Over the years, I've developed um, a view on this that starts with what uh, American historians sometimes call the American consensus, which was... Uh, After World War II, the two parties agreed on a lot of things. They had their differences as well. But there was a broad agreement on the most important things, fighting the Cold War, for example, free market capitalism, the need for some regulation within free market capitalism, the importance of education, the importance of strong democracy at home and around the world. Those were things that were basic to American politics. And they allowed journalists to to view the two parties as roughly the same in the way they operated and different in their ideology or priorities. And seeing the two major parties as roughly the same in the way they work while they differ on Uh, proposals for change and ideology was baked into the way political journalists did their jobs. And that's one reason you have a press that to this day is still preoccupied with negotiating between the two parties and um, and, uh, making sure that they're never joining a side. And of course, the fetish in newsroom objectivity and both sides thinking, all these things are artifacts of um, that view of the two parties as fundamentally the same or symmetrical, uh, which in turn is backed up by what historians call the American consensus. So that, to me, is is the problem, is that the underlying assumptions on which daily practices and political journalism are still based... Have, er- have eroded, but the practices haven't changed at the same rate. Uh, and this consumes a great deal of my time and attention as a press critic, as you might expect.
0: Yes. And that's, precisely my sense as well. And I guess the question is, why have they been so slow to change? It's not like these are not intelligent people. It's not like if you get them, you know, off to the side, they will say, well, yeah, Republicans have given up on American democracy or Republicans are now, you know, routinely lying. And yet they haven't changed. Is that because they don't know how? Is that because they're afraid to be accused of something? Why do you think they haven't made that leap?
1: I think it's a number of factors, and we can't just pick out one and, and, and carry that around as the cause. Um, I don't think there is a single cause. There's just a, a number of factors. Um, and we should admit at the outset that there have been changes. I mean, they used to not say that the president lied. Now they do. There's a lot more um, direct talk, I think, than there used to be, but maybe not enough. Um, and as you say, they're aware of something different. But I think the, the reason it's so hard for political journalists to change, or among the reasons are, um, first, journalism at the highest national level is a team sport. You need consensus. And, can, and if you don't have consensus on on sort of the basic picture of American politics, it's very hard to have consensus on what we should do at six o'clock tonight. Um, And the fact that you need these news organizations to rebuild their own assumptions makes it difficult because these are huge institutions um, and it isn't really easy to get them to change in in a day. Um, Another reason is that uh, political journalists especially generate cultural authority for themselves by being both sides creatures. Uh, And they don't want necessarily to lose that uh, because once you become uh, an enemy to one of the two major parties, you can't solicit stories from them. It's hard to get them on the phone. And all of a sudden you can't do your your job as well. So uh, that's another reason. Um, also, it's it's difficult to describe the alternative to values like objectivity in newsrooms. If that is part of the problem, what are we suggesting instead? Subjectivity for journalists? That doesn't sounds very um, appealing to most journalists. So, the fa- the difficulty in in replacing this kind of outmoded uh, practice is multiplied by the fact that it's, it's, it's difficult to get journalists to, um, to respond to the alternatives. But when we say, and I have tried to say this in any, every way I can, journalists should become more pro-democracy, which is a important way of changing. They don't like that either. <laughs> right. uh, and and so, so that's part of it. And, the, and I think there's a, a culture of being inside Washington and inside politics, which is very visible. It's been there for a long time. Um, and it provides a lot of professional satisfaction to journalists. It gives them uh, a kind of platform from which to speak. Um, things, the insider view of politics in which you're trying to figure out, for example, who's going to win and who's up and who's down and uh, who looks good uh, after these events and who looks uh, weaker. That kind of analysis makes journalists feel like they're savvy insiders, which is another thread of my criticism, the savviness as a kind of ideology in itself. Um, And it it gives them a kind of permanent place in the Capitol and in Washington politics, even as those things, um, even as democracy in, in Washington is kind of like crumbling. Yeah. So, like, all of those things are involved. And yet, I think, as you said, a lot of journalists know that these things are going on. They're tuned to it. And, and I think one thing that political journalists in Washington don't understand is a lot of their colleagues around the country are very frustrated with them.
0: (laughs) I think they're getting a clue. I think they're getting a clue because more of us are writing about this. It's um, interesting that you say they don't know what the alternative is. You have suggested, if you will, sort of taking the side of democracy or taking the side of citizenship. Mm-hmm. How would that look like? Instead of a story that says today, Kevin McCarthy said Donald Trump is merely being investigated for being a successful candidate, Democrats are defending the Justice Department. Instead of that kind of formulation, which is kind of what you get, what would be the Jay Rosen formulation of a story that explains what's going on today?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think I've worked it out to the level of, here's the different sentence you would write. Um, but I will try and highlight what I think has to happen. First, I think it's important for journalists to say to themselves as individuals and as a workplace culture that they are, in fact, Democracy. Just saying that and saying it out loud and being unabashed and open about it itself would be a kind of progress. But it's not just pro democracy, it's pro voting, pro participation in politics. And by pro voting, of course, I mean Republicans should be pro voting and, and they should be participants as well, right? Those are basic democratic values. Um, but if There are people making it harder to vote, which is happening around the country. That has to be something journalists counter with all of their might, right? Um, Pro-truth, pro-verification, all of these basic uh, allegiances were kind of in the background for journalism for many years. Now they have to be moved to the foreground, um, and when I say that journalists, I say, okay, well, what does that mean in practice? And I understand that's that is the most important question, but that's for them to determine. I I can't do that sitting here in at my desk in in New York. That's something for their workplace cultures to um, to develop. Now, at the national and state level, I also think it's really important for journalists to not just. Focus on the odds, but on the stakes. By the odds, I mean the odds that uh, DeSantis can win the nomination, even though he's behind. The odds is is uh, it's basically a sports term, uh, whereas the stakes inform us about what we could lose, and that's that's another way to describe what I think we need in political journalism is a really keen sense of how democracies die, how countries that had democracy lose it, and an eye for that kind of erosion and make that the, head, the lead of the story, make sure that process of how democracies die is itself worked into the narrative of political journalism that is built upon, uh, every day. Uh, now, I know that's not completely uh, a do this now uh, list of instructions, but I think it does begin to get us somewhere. Also, one more thing on this, um, Jennifer. Uh, people who work there told me that when they hear this phrase pro-democracy, there are editors and veterans in the newsroom who say, oh, so you mean pro-Biden? <laughs>
0: That kind of no. tells you what's the problem.
1: <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> yeah. not what we mean. Yes. Uh, but if that's what they're hearing, that's important.
0: Yes. And it, I think, bespeaks this um, dilemma that they think they are in because if they're in favor of truth and one side is never telling the truth, or they're in favor of democracy and one side isn't telling democracy, then it looks like they're taking sides. Um, yes. But that's not a function of their problem, that's a function that one party is now believing in ways and behaving in ways that they didn't before.
1: Yes,
0: an interesting, indeed. Th- an interesting, you know, kind of development is many news organizations, including The Washington Post, have now designated people as being on the, quote, democracy beat, as mm-hmm. if that is a separate kind of thing. Is that a good development or is that a bad development because that should be baked into every story and should be the framework by which you cover all news, not simply, you know, well, there's a group that's going to cover voting laws or going to cover uh, gerrymandering or what have you.
1: Uh, I think that's a hard call. I mean, any situation like that where you're trying to change a culture, you can make arguments for both approaches. One is, um, like, everybody has to be a digital journalist because it's now digital journalism land, right? Or you can say, let's appoint a few people to really dig on, on what's different about digital and they can teach the rest of us eventually. You, you I think you constantly ha- uh, have this tension between those two approaches because, frankly, it's hard to change a large organization that is set in its ways. And so I don't I don't think it's necessarily one or the other. And it doesn't bother me that they name a small number of people to the democracy beat if they allow that beat to really flower into something that can change the rest of uh, the newsroom. Um, But I want to go back to something you said earlier. Um, The way I phrase it is asymmetry between the major parties fries the circuits of the American press asymmetry between the major parties, fries, circuits of the American press, because so many of their practices were based on a symmetrical view of the two parties, right? Um, But now, uh, increasingly, in order to report on American politics, you have to deal with the overwhelming asymmetry between the Democratic and Republican parties as one goes off into a direction that is really different for American politics. Not completely unheard of, like we once had the Ku Klux Klan, right? Wait, there's our history has strands of other ways of organizing a Republican life, right? Uh, but uh, we, I think, there's still a hesitation to describe the Republican Party in what it's actually become. It's it's slower. The journalism is slower than the changes in the party. And I think a lot of it is also that journalists are so used to uh, locating politicians and parties on the left-right spectrum that they can't imagine other spectrums that it needs to be described upon, like pro-democracy and really fine with evacuating democracy. Or another way that I I like to describe it is the Republican Party often isn't necessarily moving to become further to the right, but further from the real. Not so much further to the right, but further from the real, meaning totally invested in these crazy conspiracy theories and culture wars and, and attacking trans people, which are are responses to very small, almost invisible uh, p- problems. So that, that possibility that the two parties are growing not uh, so distant from one another, that one is doing a kind of politics that I can't even be recognized by the other, that's a dramatic shift. And it's, it's hard, I think, to rebuild your practices to take account of it.
0: Absolutely. And it shows up in the paucity of language, the way we still rely too much on the term conservative. There's nothing conservative about a party that's trying to, yeah. you know, make these enormous changes in society. You can say it's reactionary, you can say it's right wing. It's not conservative, but that's the adjective that they have used for so long so that yes. people who are even crazier are called very conservative when in right. fact they're very radical. It's actually the opposite of that. I read a statistic somewhere that looked at the number of polling so- stories versus the number of policy. Stories, and mm-hmm. if you go back just a couple of elections ago, it was much more balanced. And now we have a just an avalanche of I call process stories, horse race politics stories, what have they, um, as opposed to actually looking at the substance of what people are saying. Mm-hmm. Is that done? Do you think? for ratings, because it's cheaper, because it's easier, because it appeals to this insiderism? Why do we have this massive over-reliance on polls, predictions, you know, who's ahead, who's behind, lists, you know, all of this stuff that really doesn't amount to much of anything?
1: Yeah, this is what I call the savvy style. Is included in that uh, category. Um, yes, it's cheaper, it's easier It's also something that's perennial. You can, um, every four years, you bring it out of the box like you do the kitchen, like you do the um, Christmas tree. You know, you just set it up and it runs. Um, It's also um, portable. You can bring it into local elections, state elections, national elections, and it works there. It's easy to teach the next generation, right? um there is a demand for it because there's always a demand for sports you know it's like it's it's fun to root for your home team it's it's one way of uh participating in uh politics i think the deeper reason is that who's ahead is not fundamentally an ideological question and because it's not an ideological question asking it shows that you're not an ideological person right which is what journalists want to Demonstrate. Um, it also allows you to project a very sophisticated view of politics because the minutiae of polling and the um, and of strategy, right, and the discussion of what a smart tactic is versus a dumber tactic allows journalists to show off their political intelligence without being political actors themselves. Um, I think that's a big uh, part of it as well, and and focusing on the game feels like innocent, you know. Um, it, it it allows you to take an observer's view of politics and sort of float above it, and there's a lot of appeal to that.
0: And I can't stress enough with my readers how distortive that can be. I look at the coverage, for example, of the economy. And rather than talking about what's going on in the economy, there is a constant discussion of what people think about the economy. Is Biden getting enough yeah. credit for the economy? What are the Republicans saying about the economy? Why are people so negative? And there's not enough of the they're there. There's a really big story about the economy and potential economic changes and political changes in the heartland of America. But that doesn't get covered as much as this sort of second-level viewership of what people are saying. And I would think that the average viewer, average reader, does get confused. And they are. That's how you get a population that thinks that we're still in a recession, when Mm -hmm. by objective standards, we plainly are not.
1: Um,
0: You know, getting back to the democracy issue, I often wonder if you had some people change seats, that the people who covered foreign governments, like Mm. Hungary, like Turkey, would turn around and cover American politics with the same eye. It's almost as if they can spot the totalitarian instinct. They can spot what's wrong with this picture elsewhere, but not at home. Is that kind of so... Chauvinism about America? Is that a lack of training um, that people who are overseas reporters, you know, read history, think about these things, are more removed from the insiderism temptation? What accounts for that kind of weird imbalance?
1: Um, I don't really know. Uh, I do know that if you report, American politics as you would a foreign country, you sometimes have surprising openings for description that otherwise would not be there. I also know that very often the best way to to get your bearings on what's going on in the U.S. is to talk to journalists from other countries who are assigned to report on the United States um, because they often have startling uh, perceptions. Um, I remember there was a, a case. Maybe you remember this, where a journalist from Europe was part of the Trump wagon with all the other journalists, and just was astounded at I think how little he knew about politics. Was it? Or, I can't remember the details, but it was some it was some sort of awakening. <laughs> um, also, uh, one good way for journalists to begin to start facing up to the threat against democratic institutions, which we are living through right now, is to learn from journalists in other countries who have gone through those kinds of crises. Um, And that would have been one of the first suggestions I would have made if I were part of a newsroom after Trump won in 2016, is to is to quickly educate ourselves in how democracies are lost because it has happened before. And creeping authoritarianism is something we actually know a lot about.
0: I sometimes think that the historians who are now household names um, whose ship has sort of come in, um, who talk about these issues, are extremely valuable And perhaps we should start hiring more history majors and historians on regular beats because they do lead a perception. They're able to point out the similarity between 1850s politics and American politics. They're able to point to the know-nothings of the 19th century and say there's an antecedent for this kind of politics. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems... um, perhaps self-evident that you should um, populate the newsrooms with these other perspectives, historians, foreign reporters, but we haven't seen that. Is that simply a job protection that they don't want all these other outsiders in? Is that because we're so siloed that the people who run the national political desk don't even know who these people are? How does that separation come about?
1: Well, we also haven't rotated people out of the politics beat and into others and, and vice versa. Um, Great point. We, we should be having environmental reporters in uh, the White House briefing room, for example, not just political reporters, because what political reporters do is they bring their expertise and their, ex- what is their expertise? It's not in solving public problems. It's not in history and where it's gone. It's in the game. That, that's what they're good at. That, that's, that's how they shine. And um, I think that culture has not over become overgrown, but I think it sounds harsh, but it's failed. It's failed the test of, of history because once American democracy came into peril, which it is right now, we have not seen a proportionate response in journalism. Now, lots of people who have spent their lives in the profession may say that's good. We should be a conservative institution, meaning conservative about journalism. We shouldn't change too fast. We shouldn't go with the wins because next year there'll be different wins. But there are reasons for them to to go slow. But I still think we can say... Um, we're, we live in threatening times, and I wish there were much more dramatic changes in how political journalism is done than we have seen.
0: I must say, I had to give it up because I was losing what little mental stability I have. I used to watch the White House briefing every day, and— it got to be somewhat comical. You have this very earnest spokesperson, and perhaps even bringing in a member of the cabinet, and they so mm-hmm. wanted to talk about, name the topic, infrastructure or environmental negotiations that were going on you know, in Europe or some other development. And the press corps keeps asking questions. What about the cocaine that was discovered in the White House? What about mm-hmm. what Donald Trump said you said about him? And it's like a complete disconnect. It's yeah. like they really aren't covering the news. They're covering a certain version of politics, but there really is stuff to report. And that doesn't mean that they have to say, oh, Biden's doing a great job. They could say Biden's doing a terrible job because look at how XYZ policy isn't working out as it was supposed to. But somehow they think that's it's tough when they ask these kind of, niggling little, um, you know, sort of gotcha policy devoid questions. Um, But you say, hey, there's a big topic out there. Maybe you should be covering whether we're spending too much or too little on education. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. not a good idea to um, forgive student loans, or maybe it is a good idea. So it does seem like they're operating in two different universes. Not that we should feel sorry for... An administration or a White House, but you do see a certain level of frustration because they're trying to explain to the American people what they're doing. There is some value in that.
1: Well, uh, yes, um, I think it's hard for people to understand this, but the news system—excuse me—the news system we have is not designed to produce human understanding is designed to produce new, fresh, engaging content every day. And so it doesn't really start from what do Americans need to understand? It starts from how do we take what happened overnight and generate content from it? Uh, And uh, that is part of why we don't, See a change in the kind of questions that are asked, and the kind. But another uh, example of what you were saying is this miraculous feat of fixing Interstate ninety five in ten days, right? Was an incredible example of practical democracy in action, and it seems to me that political journalists should should be interested. And why do our political institutions so rarely function in a way that they can get something like that done, right? That's a really important question. It's a bipartisan question. It doesn't apply just to one uh, party, right? Uh, And neither did the uh, 10-day solution come from one party in Pennsylvania. Uh, But we don't have that. Journalists think that's not their, their beat. Problem solving is not their beat. Creating understanding is not their responsibility, which is why if Americans don't know important things they should know, journalists don't take responsibility for that. They don't say, well, you really screwed up. Uh, Americans are very much lost on this subject. They don't know anything about something really important. Um, that is not the way they think, because their job is not actually to produce understanding, it's to produce content.
0: Boy, that is a revelation and also very depressing. And you're right, of course. When I see that the American people overwhelmingly think incorrectly that there is a recession, I think journalists should be ashamed of themselves because they've misinformed the American people. They've taught them through their reporting something that simply isn't true. But the goal is apparently not to teach people about what Economic conditions really are, but rather to produce interesting stories made up of what they can pick up during the day and turn that into something that is a take, um, yes, the a narrative, take. the take, um, the prism of you know what is going on, and that seems like that sort of reporting has gotten worse. Frankly, that there are fewer people who are engaged in finding out the what and more clever people coming up with the take on what has happened when the public may not even understand what it is that has happened.
1: It's related to something you described earlier as a second order or second layer that tends to be the one political journalists fixate on, perception of the economy, right, is more likely to become the story than an attempt to actually describe the economy that we have today. Um, And that is very frustrating. But I I do think that many of these patterns, and we are discussing patterns that recur over and over and last for years, decades, right, are more um, criticized now. They are more um, evident to at least heavy users of the news. Um, There are concerns in journalism about them where there used to be none. For example, you, you didn't used to say, see political journalists assuring you, this isn't me doing the both sides thing because... Right. Where they where they kind of make sure that they know that that, you know, they understand that critique. And that I'm not doing that. I'm sure you this is not another both sides story. And there, it shows that there is some of this criticism getting through, but not enough to retire these practices.
0: I think part of the problem lies not with the reporter, who I think is exposed to this criticism a lot, um, in part because we all have comments and emails that are visible in social media, but to the people one level or two levels above who say, give me 800 words on why Biden does X. In other words, is this kind of a management editorial problem as opposed to a writer problem? Or do you think it's both ends? Um, I think
1: it's mid-management for sure is an enforcer of some of this. Um, It's also the kind of strange world of competition within political journalism where competition doesn't mean you do the thing you do, Jen. And Jay, you do the thing you do, and we'll see as you compete who comes up with the more interesting treatment. Instead, mm-hmm. competition means everybody chases the same story, and if you get it five minutes before I do, you win, right? That's what yep. that, uh, I'm, I'm caricaturing a, a little bit, but not by that much. So some of it is that, that culture of competition where you want to be in the same game as everyone else and get the story that they don't get. Right. And that's very different than taking different creative approaches to describing our political scene and uh, letting them uh, compete with one another. So there's that. Um, There's also the success of working the refs. You know, we we have to uh, mention that. The conservative campaign to pronounce the news media, the liberal media and discredit it which has been going on for for 40 or 50 years, has been enormously successful. And it's been successful in the sense that political journalists now internalize that idea. As I would go further, I would say that that Working the Refs is probably the third most successful propaganda campaign run in post-war America after the tobacco industry and the energy industry. Uh, Next to that, the the, uh, conservative attempt to discredit the news media as being too liberal is the most potent propaganda campaign. And it has, um, it's won in a lot of ways because it has internalized that sense within a lot of journalists.
0: And uh, to your point about everyone kind of doing the same thing, um, I try not to because, again, it depresses me. But if you put on take CNN or MSNBC for several hours in a day, you won't see a wider range of stories. You think, oh, they have 24 hours, they can cover all sorts of interesting things, they can talk about the environment, they can talk about all this. It's really the same four Mm -hmm. stories or five stories, whatever the bandwidth that they're capable of doing, over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So is there... I don't know, is there some marketing research that says that people won't be interested in lots of different things, that you just have to do the same thing over and over again? Or is that just part of the limitations of resources and expertise that they don't spend time, you know, Mm -hmm. on 10 different subjects, but rather on three?
1: Yeah, I think it's part of the political economy of uh, 24-hour news, where these organizations, especially CNN, are built for one thing, but they're normally used for another. They're built to jump into action when something big happens, whether it's a hurricane or an election or a war, right? And it is kind of amazing to see yeah. how they can mobilize and and get there like Ukraine war, right? They're there and they're able to report it and they commit everything to it. It's amazing. Um, but the nature of the industry is that that's not the normal state of affairs. There isn't a, a Ukraine war breaking out every day. There isn't an assassination every month. There isn't a crisis all the time. And so you need a different operating style in which you're um, you're just operating, you're just giving sort of like a low hum of newsiness, right? And um, the cheapest way of doing that is to repeat uh, a limited number of stories. So that's always been sort of like the, the art and, uh, and also the neuroses of cable news is that it, it's built for big stories, but it has to operate 24 seven. And so it, it develops these tools that make sure there can be um, a broadcast even when one is not needed.
0: Yeah, it's much more akin, I think, to the radio, where they anticipate yeah. that someone isn't sitting there eight hours a day, although there probably are people, um, but that they would tune in, you know, once at 10 yeah. minutes after, another time at 20 minutes after, and they have to be able to figure out something about you what's You give going us
1: 22 on. minutes, we give you the world.
0: Oh, there you go. There's a slogan yeah. from my past. Um, you teach, um, and I wonder what people who are going into journalism or think they want to go into journalism think about this? Do they see this as um, a profession beset by these issues? Do they have a completely unrealistic view? Are they in, you know, uh, all the president's men land and they think it's all about breathlessly running around uh, the newsroom? What Mm -hmm. are journalism students thinking and saying about these things?
1: Well, I don't teach political journalists. I don't think I have any graduates of mine who have actually gone into the political press. Um, Hence the problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I run a graduate program focused on digital innovation and what journalism has to do to survive in a digital world. Um, and so we teach uh, for example, understanding your audience very well. Um, we we teach uh, how to design and um, produce new products, new news products that actually deliver for people. How to add value. Um, we also teach things. We've started recently teaching uh, something called solutions journalism, uh, in which we focus more on how problems get solved and how knowledge transfer can work so that if we we did well over here, we can move it and use it over there. So like from a a solutions journalism point of view, the I-95 story would be completely different. And it definitely would not be about how does this raise the re-election prospects of the Pennsylvania governor, right? It would be like, what can we learn from that example, which came... about in an emergency and make it something that we can use in regular times. Um, Solutions journalism is also, to use a really uh, simple example, um, if Seattle wants to start a bike uh, program to be able to lend bikes to people wherever they are, and Copenhagen has already designed the a really winning version of that idea. Seattle has to learn from Copenhagen, right? And journalists can be a real good go between to make sure that that happens. So, we're I teach more alternatives to the kind of journalism that we are used to as opposed to young people who want to be boys on the bus or girls on the bus. I, right. I don't that's not my constituency.
0: Well, I would hope that more of the people learning what you're teaching make it into journalism because that would certainly I think improve, elevate, you know, the uh, the discourse, as they say.
1: Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. Um,
0: I'll leave our listeners with uh, a final question. Democracy depends, to a large extent, on what they say having an educated electorate with a shared set of facts that um, if you have people who are not paying attention at all or paying attention to the wrong thing, it's really hard to have a functioning democracy in which politicians are held accountable, things get done. How much do you think now bad journalism, and not all of it is bad, but bad journalism is actually contributing now to the erosion of democracy? Is it becoming part of the problem?
1: Well, it's part of the complex that has produced this problem, but I would place a far greater share of responsibility on political actors and especially the transformation of the Republican Party. Um, journalism is built on and depends on verification. I think it is the art of verification. That is the, the most basic act in journalism is to, is to find out and ask, is this True is this? Did this actually happen? Did he really say that? Um, is this an accurate description? Um, that's the bedrock for journalism, and it still is the bedrock. It's like n- nobody has tried to replace that fundamental value in newsrooms. But in the Republican Party, there definitely has been an attempt to replace uh, verification, and um, I sometimes call this verification in reverse. Verification is when you ask um, somebody says that something happened and you verify it you ask, did that really happen? Is that true? How do we know where are the documents? Where are the witnesses that 's verification. Verification in reverse is when you take what 's been nailed down and you introduce doubt about it and introducing doubt about something that it was already proven releases a lot of energy controversy. Screaming, right? Fact checking, uh, cultural resentment, and you can use all that energy to power a political movement. And Trump came on the scene that way with his uh, lies about uh, birtherism uh, and doubting something that can't be more verified than Obama's uh, birth certificate was. If If there's a document and the document shows he was born in the United States, that's as far as we can go in verifying a a fact. And by doubting that fact and and generating a kind of negative political energy from it, he began to rise in the polls. And so the overtaking of the Republican Party by verification in reverse is far more responsible than even the worst habits of political journalists. Fair
0: enough. And I would think that the one way not to succeed in the Republican Party, Liz Cheney would be a perfect example of this, would be to engage in investigation of truth and to remind yeah. people what the truth is, because that's certainly not very popular with that yeah. crowd. So she's paid a yeah. very big price in terms of her political career.
1: Right. Or look at the uh, hearings we have right now ar- around um uh, what is it they're investigating this time? The uh,
0: Hunter Biden or uh, whatever the latest, you know, kind of screwy conspiracy is uh, Democrats meddling with Twitter or, you know, this whole right. series of, you know, um, sort of Fox specific conspiracies that are so convoluted you're not sure you really even understand what they think they're about. Um, yeah,
1: that's what I meant. N- not necessarily further to the right, but further from the real.
0: Indeed. Jay, where can people, um, I'll leave our audience with this, I promise this will be the last, some really good examples of solution-oriented journalism. Are there specific writers? Are there publications that do really well in this?
1: Um, I would say put the Solutions Journalism Network into Google and follow the links.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you so much for being with us, Jay. I can't say that you cheered us up, but you did sober us up. Um, And uh, (laughs) that is uh, definitely worthwhile.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Jen.
0: My pleasure. And that was Jay Rosen. Fascinating stuff. Wow. It gives us a lot to think about. And a lot of qualms, I think. I get very nervous when I hear Jay's analysis because I think it's so dead on. And for those of us who do think that democracy depends upon an informed electorate, the realization that the press isn't in the business of really making us informed voters is a sobering one, is a troubling one. But There, of course, is good journalism out there and there are many outlets that do it. I think you see that there's an appetite for that when you have an investigative organization like ProPublica that is out there. When you have foreign publications that are sometimes more insightful um, and certainly broader in their coverage than U.S. publications. You know that there is information out there. Unfortunately, it makes us all do a lot of work to go find this. You're not going to find a single journalist, a single outlet that provides it all. So it's up to all of us, I suppose, is the message. Um, But uh, really, an interesting conversation with Jay Rosen We hope he'll come back. If you like this show and you like other shows that we have brought to you, please tell your friends, have them listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. See you next time. Bye-bye.